but, so everything that happened at Jericho, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the cherem, the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the cherem, devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. On February 1st, 2003, most of you will remember this, the space shuttle Columbia burned up on re-entry. It had a successful mission in space, but on its return back to Earth, it burned up in the atmosphere, killing all seven astronauts that were aboard. Upon review of the situation, a piece of insulation foam had broken off of the fuel tank and damaged the heat shield on the left wing at takeoff. It had happened at the very beginning. 81 seconds after ignition, the thing that would cause the destruction of this spacecraft took place. Small little defect. You watch the video and you can see it fall off and the a structure that size, you wonder how could that cause that level of damage. But it was enough to cause an awful catastrophe. In chapter 7, we're going to read of a similar little problem that was not little at all. And in fact, would cause a catastrophe that to carnal eyes might seem far out of proportion to its size. Because despite the miraculous victory at Jericho, where they marched around the walls and they came tumbling down, one man had disobeyed the law of the devoted things. This word, cherem, is the noun form. Haram is the verb form. For something to be devoted in this context, as we've said, this is something that was set aside for God, like an offering is set aside to the Lord. It was not to be touched. And the Lord had made it abundantly clear over and over again before their entry into the promised land not to touch the harem. Don't touch the devoted things. If you do, you will take the curse that is upon those things upon yourself. And one man had disobeyed that. A man named Achan or Achan. And we're going to see the catastrophe that happens because of this. And you might be tempted to say, was this really necessary for such a small misdemeanor? But I'll remind you what the apostle said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. God's anger burned against Israel. Can you imagine that? In the midst of the celebration, after the defeat of Jericho, the singing and the dancing and the feasting, God's anger was kindled against his people. And they will pay the price for it in their next battle. And for you and I, if we intend to fight God's battles and reap God's blessings, we had best obey God's commandments and not be tempted to say, this is a small thing, and it shouldn't matter. Because sometimes a small thing can cause a large catastrophe. Let's read about this in verse 2 down to verse 9. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. If you grew up like me, you heard that pronounced A-I. It is a single syllable, Ai. If you want to call it the other thing, that's just fine too. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, 
Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The battle of Ai did not go like the battle of Jericho had gone. Now, where are we? Let's talk about this first because this does come up often as you study it. The city of Ai has caused quite a stir among scholars. It has, for a long time, been identified as a place today called Et-Tel, which is a mound of, of archaeological artifacts, basically, where the former city was. And the problem is, those that have dug into it have said this tell shows no evidence of occupation for hundreds of years, including a time where the Israelites would have come. If this was, in fact, the city I, as Joshua described it, we should have found it like we find Jericho uh, that had been inhabited and then destroyed. And there, this has been held up by many Old Testament scholars as proof that the scriptures are not true, that Joshua made this story up, and that maybe you can learn a moral lesson from this story, but there's no historical fact to be drawn from here, which we cannot accept. To me, if you're trying to find the city of Ai, and you find a city that has not been inhabited at the time of the conquest, you have not found the city of Ai. Whatever you found, you didn't find this. And there are good, Christian, faithful, conservative scholars that are contesting this, and unlike Jericho, where there's a much fiercer struggle, most of the folks that I read about this, even those that aren't so sympathetic to the gospel, are like, hey, uh, these Christians have a point. If, if this spot is wrong, then they could be right, and if they're right, then this Bible might be right. So I'm not going to dive into all the details of this. We know that it was close to Bethel, and the spot that they're debating is relatively close, within a few miles in any case, but I'll encourage you to go look that up on your own. We are near Jericho still, though. So this is really the second step, a minor stop on their journey of conquest into the Promised Land. It's just a little city. We're going to see it's about 12,000 people. That's it, men, women, and children total. Not like Jericho, a double-walled, fortified city, which Jericho was no huge city itself, but it was fortified. It was an outpost on the edge of the border. It was, it was intended to be a stronghold. And the spies come back. Joshua likes to send out spies, and so far, it's been okay for him. The spies that found Rahab, and Rahab who was then saved. Joshua himself had been one of the two spies. But these guys come back confident, which is good, because the first time we sent out spies, they came back terrified, right? But these guys also come back a little cocky. They come back arrogant and prideful. Can you see this? Look, Joshua, 
yeah, we got to conquer the city, but do we really need to get everybody out of bed to conquer I? We really just, uh, two or 3,000 at the most. Now we know the Israelites mounted and armed men, 600,000 guys. They had the numbers. But it's like, yeah, just take a few. And Joshua says, okay, sounds good to me. Doesn't pray. We'll come back to that. He doesn't seek the Lord like he did before Jericho. And the people are routed. 3,000 men attack the city of Ai. 36 are killed and they fled. Now, perhaps you're like me. And you say, wait a minute, you got 3,000 people and 36 died. I mean, that's tragic, but that's not like, that's not getting decimated. That's just, oh no, we've, we've lost some. They didn't expect to lose anybody. Like Jericho, they didn't lose anybody. They didn't expect any casualties at all. And people start dying. And the Israelites panicked and ran. As it says, they turned their back to the enemies. A cowardly thing to do. And when they get back, the people are expecting them to come back. Ah, no big deal, guys. We took care of it. Joshua's in his tent planning out the assault on the next major city. And now they come back and they're bringing bodies with them. They have wounded with them. And the people's hearts melt, which before this, that phrase had only been used to the people of Jericho, anticipating the assault of the Israelites. Now the Israelites themselves, their hearts melt. They lose faith. And uh, suffice it to say, this is not Joshua's finest hour. Now what does he do? He goes to the tabernacle. He goes before the Ark of the Covenant to pray. Good so far. But then what does he do? Look at this. He tears his clothes and he falls in his face. Those dust on his head. Those are the marks of mourning at this time. But look at how he, alas, O oh Lord, why did you bring us here at all? We should have just been content to stay there. You just bring us out here to kill us. What am I supposed to say to these people? Who does he sound like? He sounds like his own generation that had perished in the wilderness that had heard the bad report that his fellow spies had brought. And that day he had faith and said, they are bread for us. But today he says, Lord, why did you bring us here just to kill us? It's amazing how you see the same lie pop up over and over again. Satan's only got a few tricks. Learn to recognize them, friends. He sounds like his wilderness generation. What is the assumption here? You need to get this or the story won't make a whole lot of sense to you. The assumption is that God had somehow failed that God had not followed through on his promises. God, why did you do this to us? That God had either failed to remember, failed to follow through. Maybe he was tricking them. Oh, friends, I've been tempted to think that before. God, you tricked me. You told me to do this and I would be blessed and I did it and now I'm miserable. You lied to me. Now, I can honestly say that I've always tried to bring that attitude to the Lord with faith and saying, God, I'm tempted to say this, and I know I shouldn't, but I would really love an answer right now. But Joshua sitting there weeping and crying and moaning. Never mind the fact that he's got hundreds of thousands of other soldiers, and they've only lost 36. Even from a, a carnal standpoint, this battle is not lost. But he's panicking. It is a very fine line to walk between faith and and presumption. And sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference, but you must figure it out. Let me give you an example. Who had more faith in his father God than Jesus Christ himself? I mean, Jesus was the definition of, of that, right? That I'm going to, not my will, but yours be done. I'll go to the cross. I'll take on the sin of the world and 
trust you, Father. But even Jesus had things that he would not do. Look at this. You know the story. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. They're in the wilderness. Satan is tempting Jesus. The devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, very high point, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. What did Jesus say in the previous one? He said, make these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Satan says, oh, you want to throw scripture back and forth, do you? Well, is it not written? He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Don't believe everybody that's got a Bible verse, man. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Was Jesus the son of God? Yes. But he is not about to make a, make a spectacle of his power and throw himself off the mountain and say, ah, the angels caught me. See, I'm the son of God. Isn't this neat? That's, that would have been presumption, not faith. Faith says he can. Presumption says I can. Faith says let's pray for he will answer. Presumption says no need to pray. He'll take care of it. Faith says God has given us grace and liberty. Presumption says I can do whatever I want. There is license in my life. There is such a fine difference, but it's a key one. The difference between stepping out in faith and stepping out in presumption. One says God is with me. One says God be with me. Self-confidence leads to self-destruction. It is amazing to me how many times we have hyphenated self with something else these days. If you ever read A.W. Tozer, you know one of his least favorite phrases was the self-life. It says, following Jesus is murder to your self-life. Anything that is you-focused and you-oriented, following Jesus will kill all that. You know how I know that's true? Because Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and then come after me. Make no mistake, when you get nailed to a cross, you die. God will not share his glory, guys, not even with a Christian. The commander of heaven's armies is not on your side. But you can be on his. Remember we saw this back in chapter 5? Joshua's out there praying about Jericho. And there's the commander of the armies of the Lord, the Christophonic vision. And he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the Lord said, no. I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord, Joshua. Very important distinction. That army behind you, Joshua, is not the army of the Lord. I command the army of the Lord, the heavenly hosts. You can serve the armies of the Lord. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that they are the same thing. I want you all to be so full of faith that you are willing to step out and do things that other people would scream at you not to do. But do not confuse that for presumption. And one of the ways you can tell the difference is who is going to be glorified by what I'm about to do. I have faith for this. Okay. Is that going to make you look good? Your church look good? Your family look good? Or Jesus look good? If Jesus can't take glory for something because it would be inappropriate... Maybe best to skip that one. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? You know this one? The Bible says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't say I'm doing this in faith, honestly, then you're, you're in sin. And this is what Joshua had done. Oh, it's, it's full of faith. It wasn't though. It was presumption. And you can tell by the way he whines about it afterwards. 
If he really had faith, he would say, then why did you retreat? Get back there and fight. The Lord is with us. But now he broke because the Lord is not with him. What will you do for your great name? He finishes in verse 9 as if God's worried about that. As if God's great name depends on this army. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> Why have you fallen on your face? Like you're speaking to one of your tantrum-throwing children. I'm so sad. Get up. That's a very dad phrase, isn't it? Get up. What are you doing? Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become harem, devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Twice. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. What does outrageous mean? The kind of thing that ought to cause you to be outraged. There are very few times in the Bible when God says not to pray. They're in there. Jeremiah was told not to pray. 1 John tells us there are occasions where prayer does no good and you shouldn't even pray. When Saul was sitting on top of the mountaintop praying, what he needed to do was get up like Jonathan and go fight the battle. Instead of saying, Lord, do you want me to go fight the battle? And God's like, well, your entire country is being overrun, so yeah. Get up. Now, if we were to look at this, we'd say, what a spiritual man. What a spiritual man to go and weep before the Lord at the loss of the people. But remember, the implication in Joshua's prayer was that God had somehow failed, either in word or deed, meaning either what he had told them did not come true, or in deed, meaning he had not followed through. Which, of course, was not true. The problem was with them. Joshua's entire prayer was, God, why did you? And the Lord goes, get up, it's you going to come at me like I did this. Israel has sinned. He says they have transgressed the covenant. They've stolen. They've lied. And then they expected God to bless them. By taking the harem from Jericho, Israel had become harem. They had become devoted to destruction. God's favor is never a possession. You don't just get it and say, now I can do whatever I want. They got God's favor with me. That's how the pagans think about their gods. They think as long as I do this thing for the God, he's got to bless me. Or in the olden days, like, well, I stole this from the God's temple. And if I wear it on my forehead, nothing can stop me. All those people are dead, by the way. So how to work out for you? You don't get to just hold on to God's favor and say, I've got it now. I'm good forever. That's presumption. 
The worst kind of presumption is hidden sin with no expectation of consequences from God. Oh, I would just talk about it a couple different ways. You can be presumptuous in taking a step of faith that the Lord is not leading you to do. You can be presumptuous in dealing with a person in a certain way when God would have you do something else. But hidden sin with no expectation of consequences is presumption. This doesn't bother God, I presume. We love this verse, and I love this verse, guys. Don't get me wrong. John 14, 14, Jesus said, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Oh, what a verse. That's a Jericho verse, man. They will not be able to stand before you. The walls will come tumbling down. And I love that verse, and I want you to have that kind of faith. But what immediately follows that verse is verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How is love to God defined? By obedience. You do not get to walk around claiming God's promises, singing of his blessings, and believing for a miracle if you've got sin treasured up in your heart. How dare you? How dare you presume upon God's grace? That's what Paul said in Romans 2 to the hypocrites that thought they didn't need forgiveness because there were worse sinners than them. He said, do you presume upon the kindness of God, not realizing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Well, God hasn't judged me yet. That doesn't mean he's okay with it. That means he's giving you room to make it right. When you do this, not only do you deceive yourself into thinking it's okay, and you meet these people all the time, you guys, in church and out of church, that think, that's fine, God and me, we've, we've worked it out, it's okay, God won't, God won't actually, you don't think he's really going to judge people, do you? Not only do you deceive yourself, you harm others. Achan's sin did not just affect him, it affected the whole nation. Now, you might think that doesn't really seem fair. Well, that's our own cultural blind spot. To think that one person doesn't affect the next person. It totally does. In fact, when we go into prison, uh, when Zach and Dewan and I, we go into prison and we talk to these guys, one of the things we've got to teach them is your actions affect other people. And you might think, what a basic concept. Shouldn't everybody know that? You'd be surprised. You say, listen, I want you to write down, we'll have them do this, write down every way what you did affected somebody else. And usually it starts out something like, I don't think it affected anybody but me. I'm the one in prison. Why don't I worry about them? Okay, what about your wife? How's she doing? What about your kids? How are they? What about your mother? How does she feel about all this? What about the person you hurt? What about their family? What about their kids? This is usually when it starts to break down because people start to realize what they've done and they look immediately for an escape. But you know, we might not be hardened criminals that don't understand these basic concepts, but we can still do the exact same things, just cover it up with a more sophisticated veneer and say it's okay. Everything you do affects somebody else. Not only that, the church's power is spiritual, is it not? We learned this. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. They have mighty power to tear down strongholds. So when you join this army and you bring sin into this place, you're diluting the power that the Lord has provided for us. You weaken the church. Do not blame God for failure when you have flouted his covenant and called it faith. I don't know why God is doing this to me. 
Well, let's look at how you've been living. Here's a real common one. I've been praying for a job, but every time I get one, I, I lose. I just, I, I, God is taking away all these opportunities for me. I can't provide for my family. And you ask the guy, okay, well, what happened at your last job? Well, my boss was an idiot, and I told him so. And he fired me. Okay, what the job before that? Well, that boss was an idiot, too. And I just, one day I couldn't take any more, and I, I, I told him he was an idiot, and he fired me. And then the boss before that, well, I didn't tell him he was an idiot, but, you know, those other people I worked with, they just weren't doing it right. And it's like, don't drag God into that. You know why I say that? Because you didn't want God in there the whole time. You said, God, I'm, an, I'm not going to control my anger. I'm not going to be respectful. I'm not going to show love to my neighbor. I'm going to fly off the handle exactly like you don't. And then say, God, why did you do this to me? That's when God says, get up, get away from my altar until you're ready to repent. That's why John the Baptist told the Pharisees, who, who invited you? Remember that? John is baptizing tax collectors and prostitutes and I would presume murderers. Anybody that would come. And here come the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. Here they come, probably walking in lines together. And this wild, hairy preacher stands up and says, hey, 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 no, 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 uh-uh, get out of here. Who invited you to come, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Can you believe he said that? So get out of here. Go bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, we want to be baptized for the repentance. I'll believe it when I see it. This is not magic water. Just go get right with God first. And don't even think to say, oh, I'm a son of Abraham. God can turn these rocks into sons of it. Get, just get out of here. Well, I don't know if I would stand for that. Well, God wasn't standing for what they were about to do. Get up. Israel has sinned. Maybe the reason there's catastrophe in your life, God is saying to you tonight, get up. You have sinned. Get up. What do you think? Why do you think you can't get it together? Why do you think your, your employment isn't working out? Why do you think your relationships are falling to pieces? Why do you think your community can't get it together? Because there's sin and everybody knows it and you're letting it go. But aren't I forgiven? Uh, yeah, you are forgiven. What did Jesus say to everybody he forgave? Now go and... Don't keep doing this stuff. Don't sin. You know what is terrible about this story? What people accuse Joshua, the book, of doing is promoting a kind of ethnic cleansing, which is simply ridiculous if you actually read the story. They're saying God was just picking his favorites and letting them do whatever they wanted and then you know, getting rid of the other ones. Achan was acting like that is exactly what God was doing. I'm an Israelite, man. We can do whatever we want. And these Canaanites, they, they got to go. And the Lord's like, I'm not about to let that continue, even for one battle. And God swears to destroy them unless they destroy what should have been destroyed at Jericho. Now, if I heard that announcement, I hope, I hope it wouldn't be in this situation in the first place, but I hope I would then go to Joshua and say, Joshua, if I've got to die, I've got to die but I'm coming to the Lord. May I at least have 24 hours to pray and repent so that I don't go to hell when I die. That's not what happened. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning. He does a lot of that, doesn't he? 
Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. How are they doing this? It was possible they were casting lots. Uh, they also have the Urim and the Thummim, called the lights and the perfections, which seems to have been some way that the priest had of determining the will of the Lord. In any case, verse 17, he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Another intimidating thing to hear from Joshua. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, which is Babylon territory, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. How do you think the widows of those 36 soldiers felt right about now? And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Joshua assembles the people. One by one, we narrow it down to Achan. What do you think that must have felt like? You know, even if you ain't done anything wrong, when they start examining people, you're like, did I accidentally do something? Police officer goes down the street. You might be going five miles under the speed limit, but you're like, what do I, do I, you know, do you have any uh, drugs in your car? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> but slowly, one at a time. And man, how do you think Aiken felt right about now? I have no sympathy for him, but still. Caught with a cherem. Finally, this man confesses, I took a cloak, I took some gold, I took some silver. Francis Schaeffer has an excellent study on this, where he talks about the things that attract us from the world or the, the fashion of the world and the success of the world. I'll leave it to you to go look it up. But, but consider this. You might think, oh, this is such a shame. It's such a hard thing. Yeah, but let's look at it this way. Aiken knew what was going to happen to the person they identified as the thief. And he waited until he got caught, which means he was hoping that the lot would go a different way and somebody else would get caught and he would get away with it. Which means not only was he willing to let those 36 soldiers die for his sin, he was banking on the fact that somebody else would get falsely convicted and they would die instead of him. Don't pity this guy. This guy is a rascal and a scoundrel. He's willing to let somebody else die for his own sin. Or perhaps he just simply didn't believe. Although it's hard to, hard to say that you don't believe after you've seen the Jordan River part and you've seen the walls come tumbling down. But I have found that you can see a million miracles and when it comes to your life, the devil can still convince you that God can't see. 
His name, Achan, sounds like the Hebrew word achar, which means trouble, which is exactly what he brought. And that is why they named that valley Achor, which is the valley of trouble. And you see it pop up now and then during the scriptures. But you see that name Achan and Achor. They're very similar to each other. That's on purpose because it's supposed to be reminding you of what happened. They took him, they took his family, they burned them alive, and then they stoned them to death. And they piled up a big heap of stones on top of them. And we have such weak stomachs. You might think, well, that's just so, that's so barbaric. It's so, so shameful. 36 people were dead because of these. He was willing to let somebody else die. And apparently, he had dragged his whole family into this mess. And also, he had oxen and cattle and donkeys, which means he wasn't even poor. He wasn't even a broke guy stealing something to get ahead, as if that would have made it okay. It wouldn't have. But he was already rich. There's only one solution to handling secret sin, and that is to rip it out, to kill it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and get rid of it. If your right eye causes you to sin, dig it out and throw it away. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 8, we know these verses where he says, set your mind on where Christ is. And it sounds very poetic and very wonderful to set your mind on Christ. Okay, well, here's where the rubber meets the road is in the following verses, verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Not what is unspeakably wicked, but what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. What is passion? Meaning you can't control your emotions. That's passion. Evil desire. Desire isn't wrong. The sin is wrong. Evil desire. And covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Boy, do the church give themselves a pass on that one obscene talk from your mouth. So there are people whose entire ministries are revolving around making Christians okay with cursing and swearing and foul language. It's just cultural, man. They're just words. We should redeem every word for Jesus Christ. Well, how exactly do you say that you are obeying this verse then to put away obscene talk from your mouth? You know, when Israel was to commit or was to execute a sinner, it says over and over again in Deuteronomy, they were not to pity them. Do you remember when we talked about this? It says, your eye shall not pity him. If you find out your son or your brother-in-law or so-and-so is committing witchcraft or is trying to invite idolatry into the, the land, you are to publicly expose them and you will be the first one to throw the first stone. And your eye shall not pity them. The devil will stir up pity in your heart and cause you to abdicate your responsibility. So what does pity have to do with secret sin? Self-pity. You know what is a very common thing I find as a pastor? You call out somebody's sin. And rather than say, yes, you're right, I can't believe it, I'm so ashamed of myself, what you immediately get is a story. You just don't know what I've been through. You just don't know how hard it was growing up the way I grew up. Don't you understand this, this diagnosis that the doctor gave me? Don't you know what my life is? Don't, haven't you seen the way my wife talks to me? Oh, I, I'm so lonely. Oh, I get so angry. Oh, I'm so... Pity. You're pitying yourself. 
You're sitting there cringing before the, the blazing light of God's judgment, and you're trying to say, please let me sin. It's just, it's so hard. Pitying your lustful desires. When we're, what it really amounts to is, I don't want to stop. Examine yourself, Christian. Which is it? Are you fighting against sin and struggling and sometimes failing, but you get back up and keep going? Or are you using that as a cloak for the things that you want to do? Identify your sin. Do like what they did. Tribe by tribe, clan by clan, household by household, man by man. Go through your life systematically and find the sin and eradicate it. Do what Jesus did. Find the things that are causing you to sin and eradicate them. It is my opinion that entirely too many Christians are using the internet in a way that is causing themselves to sin. Can I just say that? Did Tyler say we shouldn't be on the internet? No. I think way too many believers know good and well that's where all their sin comes from and they keep going back. I need it for work. Please. Go dig ditches. You'll be righteous. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. No, it's not. Do you know what Tertullian, the church father, said to a group of silversmiths? They wrote him a letter and they said, hey, uh, we're being pressured to make idols. And we're Christians, but I mean, that's okay, right? I mean, we don't worship the idol as long as we make them. And Tertullian writes him back. He goes, you're, are you out of your mind? No, you can't make them. You're going to cause somebody else a chance to sin? You're literally making a graven image. What's wrong with you? And they wrote back and they said, oh, but Tertullian, this is my living and I must live. And Tertullian came back with my favorite three-word response. Must you live? When you start walking with Jesus, your entire perspective and focus on life has to totally change. Everybody does this. I could talk to everybody in my church, and they would all agree that I have good reasons for this. That's fine, but I'm not going to be the one standing there on judgment day. You can make me feel bad. You can intimidate me. You can sell me a sob story. You can lie to me, but you can't lie to Jesus. Or even to yourself, if you're going to be honest. You have two options. You can eradicate sin in your life, or you can watch sin slowly eradicate your life. Sin does not stay within its little boundaries. Oh, I'm just going to do this. I'm not going to go beyond that. Never works. If you've ever been through premarital counseling with me or you've heard me talk about it before, I always say when you get married or you're getting ready to get married and as it gets closer and closer to the day, you should be tightening up your rules on how you're going to conduct yourselves around each other. Don't loosen it. So many people, they, they remain pure virgins until like the last month of their engagement because they slowly start loosening up their restrictions. Well, before we wouldn't even be alone in a room together, but now really it's okay. Before we wouldn't be in the same house with nobody else, but I guess it's okay. Before we wouldn't even, you know, lay down next to each other on the couch, but now I guess it's okay. And the more you loosen up the restrictions, the easier it gets. Rahab was a pagan and a harlot. But she acted in faith, and she was able to join the people of God. Achan was an Israelite, but he acted in sin and was destroyed by the people of God. Just as those Pharisees thought that being a son of Abraham was enough to protect them, don't think that because you go to Calvary Chapel or because you live in America or you're in the South or you got baptized or anything, that you can somehow live however you want, and Jesus isn't going to have a problem with it. This is why your life has fallen to pieces, guys. 
because you're living in a valley of trouble. You're only bringing more and more trouble on yourself. Chapter 8, and we were going to get through this chapter tonight too. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Like, are you sure, Lord? <laughs> do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. How many of them? All of them. And arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. When we fail by our own hands, it is incredibly discouraging. Now, if you lose to somebody else, you can get over it, right? Ah, you know what? They were the better man that day. Or when somebody comes and messes something up for you, you can take comfort in your bitterness against that person. But when it's your fault, that's very hard, isn't it? When you're sitting there and there's nobody to blame but yourself. Where exactly do you go in your own heart to make yourself feel better about it? But you know what? There is God ready to redeem. God sends Joshua out to destroy I right after this, this really grisly and, and heartbreaking scene. And Joshua gathers the army, and the Lord says, here's what I want you to do, set an ambush. If they had taken the time to seek God first, this whole scene could have been avoided. There's a whole other lesson in there, isn't it? Could have not been so cocky. Could have prayed. Could have examined the people, double-checked. But instead, they lost this battle because of their sin. But here's the deal, guys. Once sin has been confessed, once you've really and truly repented, that's when the father is there to welcome the prodigal home. When he sees them coming from a distance and runs to his son. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, another good pair of verses here that balance each other nicely. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're going to spend your whole life pretending that you ain't done nothing wrong, you're deceiving yourself. But if you confess your sin, he'll forgive your sin and he'll cleanse you from your sin. Lord, this is what I've done. I, I'm so ashamed. I forgive you. And then there's that cleansing step. Now get up on your feet and let's get back at it. Now you cannot assume this step and then like skip it. This is what a lot of people do. This is the cycle that we get stuck in. I would like to skip the confession and repentance and go right to the forgiving and cleansing, please. No, you don't get to do that. 
Oh, but it'll be so embarrassing and I might have to step down from this ministry. And what will people say about me? Worth it. And I've also found that when you confess sin in a, in a Christian church and you are prepared to deal with it, you will be amazed at the love that is poured out towards you. Amen. Haven't you found that to be true? They'll be there to weep with you and hold you and say, it's all right, let's walk through this together. So don't skip this step. Satan will try to trick you. So you, you feel bad. That's the same thing as confessing and repenting, isn't it? It's not. Confessing and repenting is, Lord, what have I done? It's, God, I'm not going back there ever again. God, I am never speaking to her again. God, I guess I'm not the kind of person that can handle this. You'll have to take it from me. That's repentance. But do you see that now that they've done this, God is not only going to give them victory, he's going to let them plunder the city. The very thing that Achan sinned so that he could get is now being freely given by God. Isn't that what Satan always does? He tricks us into thinking the only way you will get this thing is through sin. Meanwhile, there's God ready to give it to you. God's withholding. If God really loved you, then you'd have somebody to love by now. If God really loved you, you'd have that money by now and you wouldn't be worrying about it any longer. If God really loved you, meanwhile, there's the Lord ready to give it to you. <laughs> don't let Satan trick you. He said, you know what? We're winning this battle. Why don't I just, it's not fair for us to do all this work like you did a bunch of work, you know, marking around the city seven times. It's just not fair. I'm going to take some, some. And God goes, I was willing to give you all. Whenever you, you take the counterfeit thing, you never get as good. We often blame God for withholding things that he desires to give. Well, why isn't he given it yet? Because you're all blocked up. And the Lord's like, listen, pal, I would love to give this to you, but you got to learn a, a thing or two first. You ever do that with your kids? You ever like have something like wrapped up in the closet and you're like, okay, guess we're opening that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's real parenting right there. You know, it's, I have had some friends who eventually figured it out, but... I remember we were hanging out one time and their boy was just throwing, he's like two years old, throwing the tent, wow, kicking and screaming and throwing stuff and no, you know, if I said that to my mother, then I wouldn't be here today <laughs> to say that, but they're just, I mean, and they're eventually they, they okay, you got to stop this. And then he stops and go, okay, let's go get ice cream. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was, you know, I was probably too young to be this judgmental, but I still feel the same way. And I got four kids now, like that kid doesn't deserve ice cream. That kid needs to sit there and stew for a minute. And sometimes God is like, you know what is best for you is to not have this right now. Moses, I want you to be the guy to lead your people out of Egypt. But you tried that yourself and you killed a guy. So you know what? 40 years. That should do it. Well, that's so long. God goes, not in my timeline. It's not. It's just long enough for you. Don't think that God's keeping something from you because he's just conniving and doesn't like to give you things. When God sent you into the promised land, he meant it. And he knows your ways. He knows what you got to struggle with. He foresees every battle and every outcome. Just trust the process. Confess, repent so that he can guide you back and then lead you on. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes when you repent, we want to just jump right back to where we were. But sometimes you can't go right back to where you were. You've got to be led back a ways. You ever get lost on a trail? Oh, we're supposed to be up there. 
So what do you do? You can't just, well, let's just climb. No, you'll fall and die. You've got to back up. But it's worth it because you're never going to make it otherwise. Verse 9, such a rich passage. I, I have to go a little faster, but verse 9. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, only 5,000 guys, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. Not maybe a great strategy. They left the city open and pursued Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai. We're not quite sure what weapon that was. Some translations have sword, uh, but it, javelin seems likely. Stretch out the javelin in your hand. I will give it into your hand. Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city... And that the smoke of the city went up. Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued him, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. I'll say it again. Don't sanitize this passage as if you are kinder than God in the judgment that he inflicts upon the sinners. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Haram. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Hence our difficulty locating it. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Probably not the tomb that king was expecting for himself. So Joshua positions a small force to attack head on, holding back the rest in the valley. I comes out to attack them and they run away. Ah, we've got them on the run after them. And that's when the rest of them assault the city. And I was destroyed and burned. They see the city burning and they completely lose heart. And then they meet, they're uh, surrounded by these Israelites. And it was burned, as was Jericho. They're not going to burn most cities. 
Josh, uh, Jericho and I are two of three. The other one is Hazor. More about that later. But they completely sacked the city. I'm reminding you of this. When we get to the uh, later chapter, we're going to talk about it in detail. That means what it says. That means they went through the city. They burned it to the ground. They killed every man, woman, and child they found. That's judgment. And they hanged the king in judgment for the sin of the city. And they made a pile of stones over him, just like they had made over Achan earlier, right? God does not play favorites, even with his favorites. Isn't it true that sometimes our best stories come out after our worst failures? Here's Joshua with his own hand-raising story like Moses. Remember when Joshua first led the Israelites into battle against the Amalekites and Moses raised his arms and when his arms were up, they won and when they were down, they lost. So Aaron and Hur get beneath his arms and hold them up. Now Joshua's got his own story. He's holding up a javelin, much more, you know, warlike. That's what Joshua did. It had been the signal to fight. I wonder if he had this in his mind. Like, Lord, I'm trusting you today and I'm not about to stop. Maybe some of you are here and you have been deeply convicted of sin. If, you, if you're in sin, I hope you're convicted. I hope you can't breathe. Don't convince yourself that, oh, this conviction stuff is bad for my mental health. It's good for your mental health, friend, because it's going to lead you out of the thing that's causing you to be mentally unhealthy. But once you've confessed and repented, guys, you cannot wallow in depression over it because of your failure. It's time to get up and move on and win the fight that God has won for you. This is a problem because Satan tries to get you to sin, so you sin. Now you're under conviction, so you repent. What's Satan's next move? To convince you that you can never, ever be cleansed from that sin and to keep you down forever. Paul the apostle could have spent the rest of his days brooding over the families he had torn apart and the Christians he had killed. But he didn't. In Philippians, he tells us, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So, yeah, you can sit here all day and point out everywhere that you're not who you should be. That's easy. But one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Satan is crafty. He's nimble in his tactics. If he realizes you're about to repent, then he'll pivot and say, now our strategy is to keep them down. What marks a man of God is not that he never sins, but that when he does sin, he repents and gets back up and keeps going. Our only solution is to walk in faith at all times. So listen, if you're under conviction today, be convicted, but don't mope about it after you've been forgiven. Start taking active steps of obedience, because that's a trick too. You start getting prideful about yourself. I feel so bad about myself. I haven't done anything in the church for six months. Good for you. If you really feel bad for what you've done, then start taking steps to make sure you never do that again. Make some phone calls. Break a few things. Commit to something. Take bold steps of faith right away. I love this. God does not let them wallow in the defeat. He says, get up and tomorrow you're going to defeat I. Because he knows if they don't get right back on that horse, they're going to be scared next time. If you conquer and bury your sin, God will enable you to conquer and bury your enemies too. Deal with your sin, friends, because that's the only way to get to this victory bit. I like talking about victory in the promised land, but if you don't deal with sin, you're not going to get victory in the promised land. You're going to get frustrated, and then you're going to start to doubt the existence of the promised land and the Lord who promised it to you. And I don't want any of you to end up that way. Verse 30 to the end of this chapter. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. 
Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Burnt offerings, if you remember, were entirely consumed. Peace offerings, you would burn part of it and the rest of it would be a feast. It would be a celebratory meal for you as the worshiper. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are quite a ways from Ai, if you look at the geography. So it is possible that this story of covenant renewal happened later. It shouldn't affect our interpretation. It doesn't, in fact. But uh, it's placed here for a reason. Per Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses had told them to do this over and over again in that book. Go to Mount Ebal and Gerizim in the promised land. Put half of the people on one mountain and half on the other. Half of them are going to read out the blessings of those who keep the law. And the other half are going to read out the curses of those who don't keep the law. And that's exactly what they do. They built an altar of uncut stones. They made sacrifices. They built a monument with the law inscribed on it. They read the law out loud. I imagine Joshua read the whole book of Deuteronomy to the people with the Ark of the Covenant right there. And they announced all the consequences, good and bad, together. Isn't that cool? That you've got this loud proclamation of God's covenant in the promised land before they've even finished conquering it. This is the purpose of this whole story that we read tonight, which is why it's placed here in the story. That we must return to a proper covenant relationship with God. Now, we have a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works today. But that doesn't mean your works don't matter. Read the book of James in case you doubt that. Read the book of Revelation in case you doubt that. What does he say? I know your works. The Lord knows. I don't know. You know. He knows. And today is your chance to repent of your sin, be cleansed from your sin, and stand again in that, that relationship of grace and love before Jesus. You're just kind of standing between those two mountains, so to speak. There's the blessing. There's the curses. What's the difference? Are you going to obey his commandments or not? Leave salvation aside for a minute. You shouldn't, but let's leave it aside. What is your life going to look like? If you feel like my life is just going nowhere and it keeps crashing and burning, don't let the next thing you say be, I'm doing everything God said. I doubt that very much. You know why? Because people that are doing everything God said are not complainers. Grace is never to be an excuse to sin and expect blessings. But those who deal with their sin and walk in repentance will see nothing but victory and victory and victory all of their days.